Hello, everyone. Good to see you. My name's Luke. It's good to be uh, together today. We're together, like, all across, everywhere. We got people engaged online in their different campuses, Bel Air and Edgewood and Abingdon. Let's just uh, say, hey, we notice you. We see you. Uh, hello. Welcome, everybody. Um, you stay connected as one church through the wonder of technology, right? Speaking of technology, maybe, I don't know if you're on Twitter. If you're not, you probably, you still probably know what it is. It's just a platform for just bite-sized, little bursts of information, a few hundred characters or less than a few, couple hundred characters. Um, little quips and stories. You can't tell a whole yarn on there, just a short post. Some people track their headlines that way and just stay up to date with news, maybe political news, or you, you find out what's going on in the sports world. Like a week ago, there was this quick post, Djokovic beats Federer, one of the greatest Wimbledon matches. Uh, finals of all time and then a week before that there was uh, the U.S. Women's National Team there it is just there it is the uh, fourth World Cup title and so these are these stories of intrigue and drama and there's all this backstory that led up to this moment and it gets memorialized in the moment with a, a snapshot and a nine-word headline tweeted and retweeted a million times over and that's how it goes uh, some people like to be on Twitter for the quotes they keep up with uh, maybe some of their friends and what they're saying or famous people or, or great leaders maybe past or present there are some quotes that are worth sharing and remembering uh, quotes like this one from Martin Luther King when he said, Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. This one quote just plucked out of his life, but we have the benefit of knowing some of what was going on for Dr. King and the surrounding culture, and so it speaks volumes and its meaning grows because we understand the context in which it was spoken. And I bring all that up because uh, the, the Bible, the way the Bible comes to us today from the life of David, uh, whom we've been following, Twitter pun intended, he, it often comes to us like a tweet, uh, a sound bite, a quick burst of a phrase enshrined in about 60 characters. And it's a really good quote. It's worth retweeting, and you may have heard it before, in fact. Uh, David wrote all kind of quotable stuff. It's in our Bibles. We've been going through it and reading some of it each week from the Psalms. And, and Christians down through the centuries have really latched on to this one phrase of his, which is found at the very end of the book of 2 Samuel, near the close of the David story in the Old Testament. So remember, if you've been following along with this thread of David's story, it began in 1 Samuel when David was anointed as king, and then now he's well established in his reign at the end of 2 Samuel. And if Twitter existed back then, you can be sure that his publicist would have been pushing out this phrase in the Twitter sphere when David said in 2 Samuel 24, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. I won't just give my spare change to God. Uh, if I'm going to make a sacrifice, it's going to be a true sacrifice. If I'm going to give a gift, it's going to really be a, a gift. I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Isn't that a great quote? Totally tweetable, right? You, could tweet, you might tweet it yourself before the day's over. I mean, don't do it yet. You've got to believe it first. Don't just casually throw something out there without conviction. I mean, this, this is a statement. Okay? This is a, a commitment based on principle. It's priority defining. It demonstrates a belief in, in God as someone in a position of honor and authority relative to me. He is esteemed above other things, valued above other things. He has a prioritized position, and that makes a difference in the way I behave, in the way that I make practical decisions about well, anything really, but notably in this case with what I have to give. Now, we've seen in David's life that a belief in God's authority hasn't always made a difference in his behavior. The Bible doesn't hide the envy and the murder and the adultery and the cowardice and so forth. 
as we have seen in the lives of God's people throughout the Bible. If you follow the story, they're always cycling through rebellion and repentance. As we have seen in our own lives, uh, belief in God's authority doesn't always make a difference in our behavior, in our priorities, in the commitments that we make. We know how fickle and duplicitous we are. Or I'll just speak for myself. I know it's true about me. And, And I see a quote like that. I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. I want that to be true of me. I want to embody that conviction. I want to talk boldly and act boldly, actually have something to show for it. Well, what's often been true of me is the same thing. It was often true of God's people. The prophets announced it, and Jesus confirmed it when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We talk it, but we don't always live it. David, too, talked it, but he didn't always live it. Yet at this moment, he speaks with boldness and acts in kind. It's a put my foot down, here I stand kind of a moment. It's captured and quoted and preserved in the Bible for all time. I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. A good quote is a good quote because it inspires you. It causes you to think, challenges or or convicts. It calls you to something higher. This one phrase, plucked from David's life, fueled with conviction, prompts us to wonder if we could live with the same conviction. We'll talk about some of that today as we again search for the thread that runs through David's life and hopefully discover a thread that can hold us together. Now, a couple things. Uh, Number one, you may have already started to assume that what we're talking about today has to do with money. Always a favorite topic in church. Welcome. and so, yes, that's, that's part of it. If you're going to listen to God's word today, it's going to speak in a way that has your money in view. And really, that's always the case. The commitment to God has implications in the arena of our finances. And number two, there, there's a lot more going on, actually, a lot more going on. Just like with any 140 character or less nugget that gets pulled out and quoted somewhere, there's more to the story in this part of David's life. And I'll tell you, it's a tough part of the Bible. Like one of those crazy... Old Testament stories, it's difficult to interpret. It'd be easier if we just talked about money. Like, here's a few biblical tips on finance and call it a day. It'd be cleaner. But we're going to take the Bible as it comes to us today in hopes of finding a thread that's worth weaving into our lives that could actually hold us together. So, now that I've given you two incredibly compelling reasons to listen today, one, look out for the money talk, and two, we're going to go through some wacky Old Testament stuff. All right? (laughs) Let's go. Let's go somewhere. All right. We'll start with this. This will, this will be worth the price of admission, okay? If you don't walk away with anything else, at least uh, remember this resource. Okay, the Bible Project. The Bibleproject.com. They've got a website, a lot of uh, videos and resources there. They also have videos all over YouTube as well. So what they do is create videos to help us understand what's going on in the Bible. So I got this thing. I'm reading it, but how do I understand it? How do I make sense of it? Uh, they're, they're trying to help us do that and so that we can know what we're getting into and have a chance of understanding it. So I'd recommend, before you read any part of the Bible, uh, but if you're reading a book, just go to the Bible Project and watch the video they have on that book so that you might actually know, oh, what's going on, and you have a chance of, of understanding it. So with that in mind, to help us set the whole stage for today and uh, get up to speed on 2 Samuel, remember, uh, David's life is told in First and then in 2 Samuel. Some of it we've heard in the last couple weeks. So this is the second of a two-part volume, 2 Samuel. Take a look. Book of 2 Samuel. Check out the video on 1 Samuel where we were introduced to the book's three main characters, Samuel, Saul, and David. 
And then also to the book's literary design, which first introduced Samuel and then traced the rise and fall of King Saul in contrast to the rise of King David. Second Samuel tells the story of David as Israel's king, and in two movements. There's a season of success and a blessing, followed by a huge moral failure and then its sad consequences. And then the book ends with this well-crafted conclusion that reflects back on the good and the bad in David's life, generating hope for a future king to come from his line. So Second Samuel picks up after Saul's death, and David surprises everyone by composing this long poem where he laments the death of the very man who tried to murder him. And so once again, the author, he's presenting David's humility and compassion. He's a man who grieves the death even of his own enemies. After this, David experiences a season of success and God's blessing. All of the Israelite tribes, they come to David, and then they ask him to unify all the tribes as their king. And so the first thing David does as king is to go to the city of Jerusalem. He conquers it, and he establishes it as Israel's capital city, which he renames as Zion. And from there, David goes on and he wins many battles and expands Israel's territory. Now, after making Jerusalem the political capital of Israel, he wants to make it their religious capital as well. And so he has the Ark of the Covenant moved into the city. And then in 2 Samuel 7, he tells God, now that Israel has a permanent home, he thinks that God's presence should also get a permanent house. So he asks if he can build a temple for the God of Israel. But God says to David, thank you for that thought, but actually I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty. Now, 2 Samuel 7, this is a key chapter for understanding the storyline of the whole Bible. Because God here makes a promise to David that from his royal line will come a future king who's going to build God's temple here on earth and set up an eternal kingdom. And it's this messianic promise to David that gets picked up and developed more in the book of Psalms and also in the books of the prophets. And it's this king that gets connected to God's promise to Abraham. The future messianic kingdom will be how God brings his blessing to all of the nations. And it's right here in the midst of all this divine blessing that things go horribly wrong. David makes a fatal mistake, not fatal for him, but for a man named Uriah, one of David's prized soldiers. So from his rooftop, David sees Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, bathing. David finds her, he sleeps with her, gets her pregnant, and then he tries to cover the whole thing up by having Uriah assassinated and then marrying her. It's just horrible. So when David's confronted by the prophet Nathan about all of this, he immediately owns up to what he's done. He's broken, he repents, he asks God to forgive him, and God does forgive him, but God doesn't erase the consequences of David's decisions. And so as a result of this horrible choice, David's family, his kingdom, it all falls apart. And it makes this section a tragic story, much like Saul's downfall. So David's sons end up repeating his own mistakes, but in even more tragic ways. So Amnon sexually abuses his sister Tamar, and then their brother Absalom finds out about all of this and has Amnon assassinated. And then Absalom goes and he hatches the secret plan to oust his father David from power, and he launches this full-scale rebellion. And so for a second time, David is forced to flee from his own home and go hide in the wilderness, except this time he is not an innocent man. The rebellion ends when David's son is murdered, and it breaks David's heart. And so once again, he laments over the very man who tried to kill him. David's last days find him back on his throne, but as a broken man, he's wounded by the sad consequences of his sin. 
The book concludes with a well-crafted epilogue with stories that are out of chronological order, but they have this really cool symmetrical literary design. So the outer pair of stories come from earlier in David's reign, and they compare the failures of Saul and then of David and how each of them hurt other people through their bad decisions. The next inner pair of stories are about David and his band of mighty men who went about fighting the Philistines. And what's interesting is that both sections have a story of David's weakness in battle. So in contrast to the victorious David of chapters 1 through 9, here we see a vulnerable David who's dependent on others for help. The center of the epilogue has two poems that act like memoirs, and David reflects back on his life. And he remembers times when God graciously rescued him from danger. And he sees these as moments where God was faithful to his covenant promise to him and to his family. Both poems conclude by looking back onto the hope of God's promise of a future king who will build that eternal kingdom. Now these poems and then God's promise also connect back to Hannah's poem that opened the book. And so these key passages from the beginning, now the middle, and the end of the book bring the book's themes all together. Despite Saul and David's evil, God remained at work moving forward his redemptive purposes. And God opposed David and Saul's arrogance, but he exalted David when he humbled himself. And so the future hope of this book reaches far beyond David himself. It looks to the future, to the messianic king who will one day bring God's kingdom and blessing to all of the nations. And that's what the book of Samuel is all about. All right, so there you go. Um, I don't think you have to be a nerd to like those. I mean, I think, I think anyone who's really trying to read the Bible and understand how God is speaking and know what difference that makes in my life could, could benefit and could use uh, what's going on there. So there's a snapshot of 2 Samuel. Here's the deal. We're at, uh, we're at this part today, right at the end, which the video described as the failure of David, which might be a surprise given the quote that we started with, but uh, we'll get to that. So let's go there. If you have a Bible, it might be useful to you. Take it out, 2 Samuel 24. To locate you, this is all the books of the Bible um, on a bookshelf. We're right here, right in the middle of this Old Testament section, kind of the messy middle. 2 Samuel chapter 24. If you've got a Bible, go there. 2 Samuel 24 and verse 1. It begins, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Okay, we got problems already. Uh, some questions that come up. Uh, we realize there's a great cultural distance between us and the world of the Bible. And there are some questions that we have that the Bible doesn't answer specifically. Like, why is God mad? Okay, why, well, we're not told exactly. Um, it, maybe it would have been obvious to the original readers, but we're not told explicitly. We'll make some educated guesses in a second. Also, God seems to be a little bit of an antagonist here. It says that he incited David. Well, why is that? Why did he do that? And then, why is the census bad? What, what's so wrong with that? Because the next verse says that um, David tells the commander of his army, Joab, he says, go and roll the fighting men so that I might know how many there are. But Joab immediately replies to the king, oh, why? May, may God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may you see it, but why does my Lord the King want to do such a thing? So Joab, whose character and moral conscience is way more suspect than David, immediately says, what? This, is, this isn't right. Why are you doing this, David? So, uh, how, do, how do we find our way here? Well, let, let's just rehearse what we know, okay? Start with this. Why is it that Israel has a king in the first place? I'll give you a yes or no question. Is it because God thought it was a good idea? 
No, God has always been like, I'm your king. I'm present with you in a real way. I speak to you. I share my wisdom with you. I fight for you. I provide for you. You don't need a king. I'm your king. The people are like, we want a king anyway, just like all the other nations. That's, that's what happens in my house all the time. That's how I get my way. But, uh, so God, God gives them a king, but... He warns them, just like earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 8, all right, well, here's what life looks like under the rule of a king. He's going to take your sons for his military and send them off to war. He's going to take your daughters to work in his palace. He's going to claim, his, claim your land for himself, and he's going to burden you with taxes. So that don't be surprised then when the king claims his rights as king. That's what it's going to look like to have a king like all the other nations. They still want their king. So if you've been following this thread, we see how this whole king experiment is playing out, right? First one didn't work out so well. Saul looked good, didn't last. And even David, yeah, he's got this military prowess and the expansion of Israel's territory, but he's been pretty shaky lately. So this, this uh, track that we're on is not what God chose. Now, He's working with it anyway, which is exactly how he works in our own lives, right? We, we see how God, he can still work good things. Our failures, our foul-ups, our mistakes, and our better ideas don't handcuff God from working good out of bad situations. And if we went around the room, we could tell story after story of God doing exactly that in our own lives. And that's exactly what he's doing here with Israel. He's redeeming the broken situation, still using his people to bless the world and be the light to the nations like he intended. Yet, the fact remains, we're here because God uh, made a concession to some rebellious people and they made a mess of things. And while we're not told a specific reason why God is angry, when you take everything that's transpired into account, it's not hard to believe that God would be upset over how this whole we want a king endeavor has played out. And the author of Samuel is pointing that out to us. Now, uh, what's going on with the God-incited David part? Um, I don't know fully, uh, but don't get sucked down a rabbit hole here. And just observe this, right? We're at the end of this run here. First Samuel through Second Samuel. God says, I'm your king. No, we want our own king. And then we see how we're stumbling through the king stuff. At the end now... An important message that the uh, the writer of Samuel seems to want to send is, hey, don't forget who the real king is. Yeah, you rejected God as your king, and now you've got David as your king, and of course he's got the expansion of his kingdom and all the accomplishments of his mighty men, and we read about all that, but don't forget God's position as the ultimate ruler, the, the shot caller. Right? That's definitely a message coming through here. So whatever else it means that God incited David, it's at least saying to us, look, David rules you, but God rules David. God's position as king is still firmly established. Is that a message that that you've been willing to hear? That God rules? He's the boss? Sure, you may have a lot of freedom, a lot of power, a lot of ability to select a path for your life. Even the poorest among us and most disadvantaged among us have quite a bit of power in that regard relative to the rest of the world. You may be accomplished and self-sufficient. You don't wear a crown, but maybe you have brought a lot of your world under your control. You live where you want, you get what you want, you get people to do what you want. But are you open to the reminder that God is still king? And if you believe that he's your king, do you behave in kind? Like with your money, do you let God be king over your wallet, what you spend and what you give? 
over your relationships and how you treat other people, over your time and how you invest it. We all sometimes need to be reminded that God is still king. That lesson is going to be learned the hard way by David and God's people here uh, really hard. David is. He's making a power grab. That's what's behind the census and enrolling the people, claiming his rights over them, calculating the total numbers of the army to plot further takeover. He's the king, and he'll push his agenda, even if his crooked commander has the conscience to object. That's what he's going to do. So the story moves like this. The census is carried out, and then afterward, David knows. He knows it wasn't right. It says David was conscience-stricken after he had counted. But of course, after. It's already done. And he said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away my guilt. I have done a foolish thing. So to our question earlier, regardless of what prompted David down this path, he doesn't say, God made me do it. No, he, take, he says, I, I have sinned. He confesses, I've sinned badly. The next morning, a prophet comes with a word from the Lord. There will be consequences for this, David. You choose. He says, you can have uh, three years of famine in the land, which affects the whole nation. You can have three months of fleeing from your enemies, which affects only David. Or three days of plague in the land, which again affects the whole nation. David chooses option three. The next day, a plague ravages the nation and 70,000 people die. Can you imagine? Devastated mothers, orphaned children, cries of weeping and wailing rising from the street. And probably even the sound of a familiar jingle as well. See, we didn't go over this part of the story. Uh, the video said that the book ends with these parallel stories from Saul and David's life. In 2 Samuel 21, we kind of get the story of the last of the remnants of the sort of curse of the King Saul era. Uh, earlier, years before, Saul had killed the Gibeonites when they had a treaty together. And that evil is brought to justice here by the execution of seven of Saul's descendants. Saul's sin led to the death of seven people. David's sin... 70,000. Do you remember the ditty they used to sing in the streets when Saul was king and David was rising in prominence? Saul has killed his thousands. David, his tens of thousands. It was a lot happier tune back then. I told you this was the messy middle. What is God doing in this debacle? Bring it to a conclusion here. The plague spreads, and it's about to infiltrate Jerusalem. And then God sends the prophet back to David to tell him, go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite and sacrifice to the Lord. Now, a threshing floor is where the wheat harvest was brought and threshed, literally beaten to separate the grain from the chaff. Threshing floors were often considered like sacred spaces. They symbolized life and God's provision from the land and also God's judgment as they were up on a high place where the wind could take the chaff, the waste away, and leave what was good there. And this particular place, this threshing floor, would be the spot where Solomon, David's son, would build a temple for the Lord where for generations to come, God would dwell with and meet with his people. Perhaps something redemptive can be wrought out of this tragedy. God seems intent on doing exactly that with these broken pieces. David the most broken, just like he was after Bathsheba, thoroughly humbled. And after everything he's done wrong, he finally does something right. 
he submits to the Lord and he goes to Aruna, the owner of the land, and Aruna offers to give the land to him and all the supplies for all the sacrifices and the building of the offer. You can, you can have it. It's yours. David counters his belief now uh, having, making a difference in his behavior. Uh, this sacrifice which takes away sin and stops the plague of death will not be free. I insist on paying you for it, David says, for I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. David pays the man and builds the altar and makes the offerings and petitions the Lord. And then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land. And the plague on Israel was stopped. The end of the book of Samuel. <laughs> Credits roll and the lights come up. It just ends like that. Just like that. I told you it would be easy if we just talked about money. All right. Well, it is true. The themes that we started with are there at the end. David learns, and it's good for us to learn as well. God opposes the proud. And he exalts the humble. And even... Through pride and failure and evil, God's redemptive work is still moving forward. And it definitely leaves us longing for a a legitimate king, a leader, a messiah. Now, you, uh, you may not be familiar with the Messiah term or know much of this story or even of the Bible story, but I think I think we all have a longing for what a king is supposed to provide, like direction, wise counsel. For life, uh, justice, fairness, hope, vision for the future, security, peace, uh, provision, abundance, livelihood. Now, we don't don't live in a kingdom like the Old Testament people did. And there is this cultural distance and all of that stuff is wacky when we hear it. But, But they're not the only people who have wished for someone other than God to lead them. It's fair to say that our clamoring for a king leads us to appoint ourselves to the position I'm sufficient to lead my own life, to do what's right, to know what's best for me, to protect my interests, to secure my future, to find my purpose. I will assert my will over my domain and gain more of life under my control, like what David was doing here. But assuming that position has consequences. Hopefully not as extreme as what David experienced, but the witness of the Bible and the witness of our own lives, if we're truly paying attention to the fulfillment that always just is beyond our grasp and the things that are beyond our control and the damage we've done and our own frailty is that we weren't meant to be our own king. And so the thread of the Bible which runs through King David points us to another king, Jesus who didn't ride in with a conquering army, just the power of his word. A king who does not oppress or burden, but who brings freedom and casts out fear. A leader who's not blinded by a lust for power, but sees the downtrodden and the broken and elevates their dignity. A benefactor who gives more grace, more forgiveness, more sustenance, and never, never runs out. A shepherd who does not lead his people astray, but defends the flock and guides them on paths of peace. He lays down his life for the sheep. Indeed, to secure their life, he makes an offering that costs him everything. His sacrifice to take away sin and stop the plague of death was not free. Every week, when we gather to worship, 
when we sing, when we serve, when we pray, when we give, we remember the one who gave it all. The true king, Jesus, the more perfect David, who paid the price for the threshing we deserve that we might experience hope and forgiveness and life to the full. Will you let Jesus be your king? Now that question is grappled with here and here. And it may direct us in a number of different ways depending on where we are. Maybe for the first time you're ready to say, I want Jesus to be my king and you'll get baptized and mark your life in that way. Or for you, uh, you understand a place where you need to repent over the damage that you've done in a relationship. But as we close it, it's worth returning to that quote that we plucked from the story. Because often, as we think about connecting a belief in Jesus as king with behavior that uh, reflects that belief, uh, it's in this area of giving where we have the most difficulty. Jesus' kingship uh, strikes us here and here and also here. My, my wallet, not my, you know, here. And it's just, it's just where we are. It's, it's just where, that's, that's our, our cultural reality. We live in an affluent, the most affluent society that's ever existed, even if we don't feel rich. It's just, it's where we are. We have a desire to protect the things that we have in order to feel secure. We like to keep our faith box compartmentalized from our finance box. God can rule in this one, but I'll take control of this one. Thank you very much. It's a common struggle. And again, because of our cultural reality, probably the biggest threat to God being king in our lives is a tight grip on money. Now, this story is about more than money. But when David finally got it right, he got a lot wrong. But when he finally got it right, he showed that a full commitment to God is expressed through giving. It just the Bible always talks about it that way. Making a sacrifice, offering something of value that truly costs us is a fundamental way to worship the God who gave everything for us. That's the way the Bible always teaches about it. That's the way that we talk about it here. We talk about, hey, you could put something in the kiosk or you could give online. For them, they offered bulls and rams. In an agrarian society, that was livelihood for them. It honored God as king over the whole land, as the one who gave the ability to accumulate wealth, as the source of every blessing. That God sacrificed his life in order to make us truly rich. Giving is simply a way to respond to the king who is worthy of worship. So this, this isn't a full treatment of the subject, and this thread is going to run through next week's teaching as well. But as you reflect on God's word today, may, may all of us be prompted to think about what would it look like to live with conviction in this area? Connecting belief with behavior, right? No matter what else we've gotten wrong, how could we get it right when it comes to the matter of whatever we have to give? Hey, we're not as rich as King David. Maybe I haven't screwed up as bad as King David too. Hey, that'd be great, right? But whatever we have to give, doesn't, doesn't matter. If we can get it right and let God be king even in the realm of our finances and live with the conviction that God is worthy of worship and worthy of sacrifice and, and our best gifts, we're not just throwing God's leftovers or, or our spare change. I'll just tell you, the more that I've learned to get it right in this area, nothing has impacted my faith more. It's just the way it goes. You let God be king in this area. You, you live with that conviction. I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. 
And God will take the throne of your life as a wise, powerful, benevolent, trustworthy, gracious, faithful king. Allow that thread to run through your thoughts and conversations about money and giving. And think about what would be a sacrifice for you. Don't screw up as bad as David. But let's get right what David got right. Would you pray with me? God, thank you uh, so much for your word and all the ways that it speaks to us, all all the different and difficult ways sometimes, the the messy parts of the Bible. uh, We accept them and, and trust that they're your word and that you are somehow guiding us. We invite you to lead us today to truly be our king over our whole lives. Rule in this place. Rule in this church. Rule in the lives of each individual who is listening right now. Uh, in the area of our mind and our heart and our actions and, and what we do with the money that you have entrusted to us, God, be king in all of those ways and teach us what, it, what that looks like. Remind us of your goodness. Remind us that you're a king that can be trusted. Remind us that you're a good king and someone who uh, looks out for us and knows indeed what's best for us. Uh, we submit ourselves to you because you have offered the best of yourself to us. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.